Hey Zombies and Zombettes, uh, welcome to Hey All You Zombies. Uh, this is a weekly podcast uh, with me, Richard Krauss, sitting in my, my zombie lair, uh, complete with my zombie pen holder. I've seen, I've shown this before, but he's pretty cool. And uh, Chris Abel on the other end of the line. And I showed this because Chris has, I wanted to say that I've, I've brought a prop as well today, but Chris uh, outdoes me here with something very exciting, hiding under a, a shroud, which I'm sure we'll find out about very soon. Yes, uh, and, and that's going to be about uh, what we've been talking about each week, which is The Walking Dead. We had another fantastic episode on Friday. It uh, was, and, and another different kind of episode again. Like, this was very much uh, like the old Alfred Hitchcock show on the bomb under the table, and it's going to make everyone a little more tense because you're waiting for that bomb to go off. And so this episode to me was pure suspense, although I have to say that I felt a little let down at the end of it. But I'll let, we'll get to that in a moment. Yeah, it, and it's, it's kind of been an interesting series in that every episode is told in a, a different kind of way or a different sort of uh, direction on it. The last week that we talked about it was just full of all sorts of little tiny details. I watched it again. Uh, when they had the recap, and I noticed even more things about it. That what we last time we talked about one of the zombies having a bracelet, right? Yeah. That was on the wrist. Uh, well, uh, that at the beginning of the episode, there's a sign that they see on the side of the road. Someone has left it that says, "Aaron, I'm going to try my luck at Stony Mountain." Jay, yeah, what's Aaron on the on the bracelet? Yeah, yeah, and and uh, and I watched again the whole sequence of Morgan in his room and all the things that are written on the walls. Uh, in addition to, you know, um, one of the main characters that he talks about, written on the walls is the name Zach, and it says Zach turned, and Eugene turned. And then all over the place you see the name Ibn, and what's interesting in one shot, it says Ibn is alive. So I, I don't know if Ibn will ever come back as a character later on. Coming, yeah, something that we said. I mean, it's not like, you know, there's going to be any shortage of characters in this thing. They can just go anywhere. They can do one-offs. They can come to Canada. They could go to, you know, South America, where all the zombie things are happening there, too. This show could be uh, anywhere, uh, could be placed, located anywhere, and could be anything. This thing, I think, as long as it keeps as, as good as it has been, uh, there's a lot of life, ironically, a lot of life left in The Walking Dead. Yeah, and I'm surprised at how populated the world is. I mean, the, the story is now taking place one year has passed since uh, the outbreak, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, and yet we're still encountering a lot of people. There was the family with the baby on the highway. Uh, last week there was a, a hitchhiker on the, the highway. Uh, and so many little details that suggest that there are other stories that are happening. I, you know, Morgan's room was full of so much ammunition and guns that there has to have been something that happened in the past year. Uh, I don't know if they'll ever go back and, and try to explain. I noticed on the side of the street there was a, a police riot shield, yeah. which is not something that a small town would have. That would have to come from, like, the city of Atlanta. But another detail that I picked up on that made sense for this week's episode that carried forward was at the end of last week's episode as they're loading uh, the weapons into the car, Michonne has on her back uh, a little several flights of arrows. Right. And in my head, I thought, well, she's just picking up ammunition for, for Daryl, of course. Uh, but no, you'll notice that from this point on, Daryl has an entirely new crossbow. Yeah, like it's a big, very elaborate looking thing, yeah. Which yeah, must have come from Morgan's place, I would guess, right? Exactly. And and uh, one of the, the details I picked up was that behind the scenes, apparently the crossbow that they had been using, which I, uh, apparently was never meant to be a, a, a constant object in the series. I think it was just something that Daryl was supposed to use for a couple of episodes, and then he would move on, and it became so iconic that they continued to use it. But it was so big and ungainly that uh, the actor who plays Daryl uh, apparently twice gave himself a black eye with it. <laughs> His name is Norman Reedus. That's and uh, if you've seen the Boondock Saints movies, I'm like, where have I seen this guy before? He's in the Boondock Saints movies. And uh, and also, he's in a Lady Gaga video as well, where he, like, uh, and I, I haven't seen it. The song's called Judas. And he does something to her behind. He pours something <laughs> or something on her behind, from what I understand. Which is why you do music videos, because then you're going to end up doing that kind of, you know, strange and odd and unusual thing. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, it's interesting, all the little details that are moving forward. Uh, cool. And this was more of a straight-up, you know, 
Well, this was more like a season two episode almost where there was a lot of talking and uh, it's essentially a long negotiation uh, between the governor and Rick and they're seated at a long, uh, where else are you going to negotiate, but around a long table. Uh, looks like in a barn or something, sort of neutral territory uh, somewhere, except early on, the governor sits down and he's, you know, he's cocky. He's like, hey, I'm taking my weapons off. But there's a gun under, like taped to the table pointed at where Rick will be sitting uh, within easy reach of the governor, right? And so for the rest of the show, and I thought that this was a, a kind of interesting, although bugged me a little bit, detail that they did, is for most of the show, when the governor was talking, he's got one hand under the table. Like he's always, the, the, the inference being he could shoot at any time. You know, and, and Rick was up and down, and he was, you know, he's edgy. He's meeting this guy. He doesn't trust him. And so he's up, and he's down, and he's sitting. It's not until a little bit nearer the end of the show that he sits and remains seated for a while. So you wonder, is he going to get shot? Is he going to become injured? What's going to happen here? And then, and this is a spoiler, nothing happens. I know. In terms of that. And I just thought that it was a bit of a cheap, like, I, I, I felt it was just a bit of a cheap thing. If you show us the gun, you better use the gun. And it was, uh, for my money anyway, um, that thing. Alfred Hitchcock has the famous quote where he talks about, uh, if you want to really make uh, a scene between two people talking tense, put a bomb under the table that they don't know is there, but that the audience knows is there. Because then the audience spends the entire time wondering when the bomb is going to go off. And now in this case, the governor clearly knows that the, the gun is there, but Rick doesn't. So you spend the entire time, or I did anyway, watching this going, oh my God, when's it going to shoot? When's it going to shoot? He's going to miss him. You can't kill Rick. He's going to just graze him or something, and then all hell's going to break loose. And you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and it builds good tension, and then there's no payoff to it. And that bugged me a little bit. Yeah, I, I almost half expected it was going to be a Han Solo Greedo kind of thing. That we, you know, they're showing us uh, the gun to, to make us think that the governor has the hand, uh, he's got the advantage, and yet surprise us by having Rick sort of turn around and, yeah. uh, and be the hero. I mean, it would have been a great moment to showcase Rick, who has been kicked around a lot. And I mean, a lot of people aren't really too, you know, likable of the guy. This would have been a great moment to kind of show him off as being the hero that, that we really need him to be. And nothing happened, which was very disappointing. I mean, well, exactly. And if you want to, like, if you want to make that scene uh, if you want to have that gun there with no intention of using it, uh, I would have thought maybe dramatically what you do is you, uh, you can have it, show it, and, you know, clearly understand that the governor is using this for his protection. But, you know, then you have Rick sense that something's wrong, but he doesn't know what. And say, you know what? I don't, you know, it, because quite clearly the governor wanted him to sit at the other end of the table. So dramatically, maybe it might have worked better if uh, Rick says, you know what? I'm not going to sit there. I'm going to trade places with you because I don't trust. Maybe your guys are going to shoot him through this window, or maybe this is a setup, whatever. And so then he sits at that end of the table with the gun that he doesn't know is there within easy reach. And it would have made a cool shot every now and again. You show a low shot where you can see the gun and Rick kind of talking near the gun that was meant to shoot him. And it might have it might have given more of a reason for that gun to become significant. As it was, it was just, uh, I, I thought, kind of a cheap way of imbuing some tension into, a, into an episode that was just all talk. All talk. Yeah, I'm not. I, I had issues with the the whole storyline because I wasn't sure what it is that they were trying to accomplish. Were they trying to do a cool showdown between these two characters? Because ultimately, it wasn't a very cool showdown. It was a case where Rick comes off as being strategically pretty inept. Yeah, uh, he, he sits down. He's not. Uh, he's in a place where he could easily be shot. Even in the course of having negotiations, he didn't score many points against the governor. The governor was sitting there coolly, calmly playing card after card after card. And it's all now. I mean, the governor says, "Like, listen, I, I won't kill all your people. You just give me, you know, one of you, you know, give me Michonne. And but the thing is, that doesn't really work uh, in a really interesting uh, way because it makes Rick's character look completely passive. Now, later, he's like, hey, we're going to war. So he's not completely passive. But in the moment, it made him look passive, I thought. Yeah, and this is a guy who's supposed to be a sheriff. So he should have experience 
of having sat on tables and, and interrogating people who have been lying a blue streak in front of them. This is a guy who should have at least had some interest growing up in playing chess and playing cards. He should have understand uh, aspects of strategy. But he came in and he was completely inept throughout the whole sequence. I mean, you know, as soon as you realize that the governor doesn't want anything, right. uh, and and unfortunately it becomes a deal in which the governor is not giving up anything. At yeah. the end of the, the episode, they walk away. And although uh, um, Rick hasn't explicitly said, yes, I will agree to the deal, he hasn't said no either. And that's a shame because he's walking away from the table and uh, the agreement that sits there is that he's going to give up something, but the governor's not. That's a bad deal. Well, it is a bad deal. Well, it's not a deal. It's, a, it's, a, yeah. it's an intimidation ploy or it's whatever it is. It's not a deal. And uh, the thing is, though, it sets up, there's only three episodes left. It sets up what will very likely be, you know, an insane couple of episodes of you know a shootout it'll be the kind of stuff that you know made the zombie bomb episode so amazing but on the other hand it seemed like a it seemed like a, a cheap way like you know for as much as this show gets so right it seemed to me like the idea of having Rick living in his head and seeing Laurie uh, as an excuse to get him into situations that he would not normally go to and, and, you know, I, I, I like, you know, I mean, I know you got to shake it up. I listen, I get that, but, uh, they, they have to ring dramatically true. Otherwise you kind of, you know, you start, you know, playing on your iPad a little bit more, checking Twitter a bit, you know, a little bit more often, uh, to see what other people are thinking about the episode while it's actually happening. And for me, that's what this episode was. It was. Um, I watched until I realized, and I clued in, I think, fairly early on, I think that the governor's not going to use that gun. I'm kind of like, then why is it there? And it just felt like a little manipulative to me. Yeah, I don't, um, I mean, it, it was an episode that ended up making the governor look really good in the sense of, of being the guy who, you know, do and dominated the situation, basically ran that negotiation, and, and then left. And, you know, Rick did nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing. What I would have liked from Rick is that the point that he realized that it's the governor who wants something, not Rick, then he's got him on the hook. He should have said, well, if you want me, Sean, if, if that's what you really want, because he, he even tests him. He says, really? You know, you are the guy who has figured out this whole situation, this apocalypse. You've got this town running. They're going to erect statues to you. Is it really worth giving all that up just to have me Sean. And as soon as the governor says yes, then Rick's got him. Rick can then turn around and say, well, you know, um, how about, you know, what? here's the things that I would want from you to give you me Sean. It's yeah. not just about, you don't want my, my prison, you don't want any of my people. Here, you know, um, how about you agree to holding an election? You're not going to get it, but the point is to at least set up a story so that as the details of that deal leaks out, it, it affects the, the people of Woodbury. If they hear that an election was proposed and the governor turned it down, then that, you know, it's going to help out Rick. If everybody finds out the details of this meeting and it's just basically Rick saying, yeah, we'll give you me, Sean, that's not going to help Rick at all, regardless of whether he agrees to it or not. No, and, and uh, I, I mean, ultimately we know now that he's a spoiler, spoiler alert, he's not going to give her up. Um, he said we're going to go to war and, you know. Well, I mean, it, he didn't really make that clear because as they're talking with Herschel at the end, right. he's asking Herschel, oh, you know, to try to talk me out of this. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. That it wasn't a case. I don't feel that he'll give her up. What happens in the comics? What happens in the books? Um, in, the, in the comic books, uh, do, 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 none of this has taken place because right. uh, the governor's dealt with sort of the way everybody wanted it dealt with. <laughs> well, I, I have a feeling that the governor is going to be a, a, a one-season arc. Mm -hmm. I think he'll either be in this big war that it looks like it's coming or something's going to happen. Uh, I think that the governor is going to uh, either be run out of town, literally, like, you know, go on the run, or he's going to be killed. I don't think he'll be back next season. My expectation is that this is going to be about completing uh, Andrea's arc. Um, that uh, well, man, do people hate her? I know. Holy man, I mean, if you go online and 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 look up, let's just see if I can pull up anything on Sunday night when when I was looking, uh, you know, during the sort of duller parts of the negotiation, I you know I always check Twitter and see what people are saying, and boy oh boy, do people hate uh, that character, and. You know, I mean, I get it why people don't like her to a certain extent, 
But uh, I don't I don't get the vitriol here. You know, apparently she got death threats. When remember she winged uh, Daryl at one point with a gun that she and 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 people were people were were uh, writing her death threats. So they had to get Gail Ann Hurd, who was the executive producer or one of them. Um, she had to come up with a solution, and she said, "All right, we need pictures of you two like piling around the set together, you know, arms around one another." And then Norman's got to release a statement going. It's just a character on television, and I'm okay. She didn't really shoot me, and everything's cool, you know. Yeah. And uh, and they had to do that because uh, people dislike this character so much that they're transferring it to the actors. Um, no, and each episode doesn't seem to be helping much. I mean, it's funny that Andrea is the one who brings this whole meeting to happen, and the moment the two guys go, you know, we don't need you here, get out of here, she just walks away. Uh, I and it, it doesn't help because I mean, her character is supposed to be a civil rights attorney. Uh, it's hard to imagine any civil rights attorney just giving up that right. easy. I'm out. See ya. Okay. Yeah, being, yeah. being thrown out of a negotiation like that, you know, and there's no point which, again, she's much like Rick and that we're not seeing them do the kind of things that they should be doing. She should have been saying, oh, look, in a negotiation, you need an arbiter, you need a witness. I'm going to stay here. We're going to bang this out and da, da, da. And that didn't happen. It was just that she was just waved away and she just kind of walked out the door, you know. Um, okay, so I can't find any of the uh, uh, the real hate for Andrea on here, but there is a, a tweet here. The Walking Dead has a budget of $2.8 million per episode. It's a whole lot of money for an hour-long television show. It's a lot of money for a wooden table and a prop gun taped underneath. That's the thing, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I don't quite grasp it, although maybe that's the average. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, probably some episodes come in at you know three point five, and others come in at one point seven or something, and it all averages out. But uh, man, that's because uh, in this episode, nothing really much happened. Although there were some cool zombie kills uh, with the bat. <laughs> the guy with the bat likes him. He, he there were some squishy zombie kills there that I thought were uh, you know the kind of thing that you tune in to see. Yeah, and a lot of it was practical effects. I mean, there is CGI. Uh, they've explained every time. Uh, Daryl uses his crossbow. They have to actually put in CGI arrows uh, that he shoots. So I'm sure there's a lot of sort of stuff that you can't notice or, or tell that's expensive that's on the screen, but it does seem like a lot of money. Yeah, so much CGI. Like it's it, it, it's really interesting uh, if you uh, notice how much CGI is in stuff, or if you knew how much CGI is in stuff that you that you don't know. Like you think that. It typically that CGI is, oh, there's a robot. That's probably computer generated. Or, you know, that they just blew up the White House. That must have been computer generated. When in fact, a lot of movies, character-driven dramas, use CGI to create, you know, the backdrops of windows. If you're in Paris, you don't actually shoot in Paris. They, it's CGI'd in and all that stuff. So there's a lot of stuff uh, like that that happens in movies and television that you just wouldn't really think of as being CGI. But it is. It's expensive and, and people use it. Now, the one surprising thing about this episode was that they took the time to depict uh, the governor's men. You've got uh, Martinez, who right. I think they just chose that name just so that David Morrissey, who plays the governor, can say Martinez, the way that he says Martinez. I love that all the time. Um, uh, but the, the interesting thing was the interaction between Daryl and this group and those henchmen that they seem to be ready to turn on him. Right. at any moment. They don't seem to be as committed to following the governor's plans as you might believe that they, that they would be. Yeah. Well, there seem to be, I mean, the, the, the yeah, there, I mean, they seem to, Martinez seemed to think that Daryl was okay by the end, like when he was offering him cigarettes, so Daryl offered him a cigarette, he didn't take it, but they seem to realize that, hey, we're not the enemy. We're, you know, it's like those, uh, uh, what's it called? The movie where uh, the Germans and the English are fighting and then they take a, they, they cease fire for Christmas, you know, we realize we have something big in common or War Horse where they, they help one another free the horse at the end of the, uh, you know, the, the Germans and the English. And, you know, and that's kind of the, the thing that they have in common really are the zombies and their situations. And, and they realize that they're not all that different. And so it was interesting. Something more will come of that, I think. Um, it was too much of the episode for it to just disappear. I think you're going to see an alliance built there that is unexpected or um, something. Something more will come out of that in the war that happens, I think, and it's going to. I predict it. Um, in, the, in, the, in the war, I think that you're going to see um, a, a, another dynamic there played out between those two based on the, what they found was some common ground. 
Yeah, my take on that was um, because that all that whole scene started with Martinez sort of just pushing yeah. at Daryl. And my take on that was that Martinez was trying to figure out why Daryl was being treated as an equal within that group. Right. Whereas at Woodbury, Martinez and, and the other sort of, I don't know, um, soldiers for hire are they're separate from the people of Woodbury. I get the feeling that Martinez and his group don't get a nice comfy house, right. don't get to be, you know, to mingle with the, the regular people, that they're treated as just these, these henchmen that are there for the governor and he uses them. And so I think part of that was him sort of saying, well, you know, you are like me, but they seem to respect you. They seem to treat you well. Are you really like me? And I think that was, that was part of it, him pushing around and sort of realizing that, hey, if he was on their side, then he might be treated like Daryl is. Right. Right, maybe so, maybe so. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I think that there's going to be something. There's going to be a, a plot point that's going to hinge on the uneasy friendship that they have right now that they kind of started here. There's only three episodes left. Not a long time to go here. Uh, but something's going to come up out of that, I think. Well, the, the one detail that I'm, I'm watching very carefully, and I would say to anybody who's following the show, this is something to look for, is, uh, again, you know, the last episode that we saw was just full of all sorts of little tiny things. Uh, there's a moment where Rick is looking amongst all the guns and the ammunition, and he finds that rifle with the scope on it. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And, uh, you know, he picks it up with a moment of recognition because that was the rifle I think he had. Yeah. Or um, it's the, the rifle that he gave to Morgan and he said... Wife with, right? So, yeah. Right. Because it's got the scope. So you're talking about a, sm a sniper rifle there. Uh, my feeling is, because they, they show it again in this episode, is keep your eye on that gun. And keep your eye as to who's going to pick up the gun, because I think that'll be the one that ends up ending the war. That's interesting. That's well, my prediction. Now, well, what's, uh, I, can't, I can't wait any longer. What's under, the, uh, what's under your shroud, your walking All right. shroud? So one of the great things about this episode, I mean, in, in terms of standoffs, it was one of the weakest standoffs for heroes that are out there. I mean, Gary Cooper, Han Solo, uh, when they had to stand off in front of somebody, I think they did a far better job. But in terms of the, 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 the villains... This was a great episode in which David Morrissey just got to smolder and smolder and smolder, do that southern draw and slowly lay out every little... I mean, you could tell that the whole discussion was going according to his plan. But I make the case that the great thing about the governor is you never know if he's lying or if he's telling the truth. And, and just there's so many double meanings. So I decided for this episode that I would apply yeah, a zombie polygraph machine. Excellent. Excellent. It, it's very much like a regular polygraph machine in that from a scientific point of view, it's not very reliable. But being a zombie uh, polygraph machine, it can detect the truth uh, by basically looking into one person's good eye. So this, right. is, this is designed for the governor, you know. Uh, and so I want to kind of go through some of the things that the governor said in that episode and, uh, you know, talk about what was a lie and what was truth. All right. All right. Uh, well, one of the first things that he said was that the whole thing that happened with Maggie, that was all Merle's doing. Right. Merle's responsible for that. Right. Uh, and I think that, obviously, that's got to be a lie. Yeah. Well, let's see what happens. Well, I don't, it doesn't light up or do anything like that. It, it does. Uh, I'll show you if I turn it on here. We'll just power it up, but I'm not going to get a, a yes or a no. Uh, da -da 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 -da. Where are you? Switch is down below. Hold on. Uh, see if he'll wake up. I don't think he will. I, I feel like he's looking into my soul and he's telling me the answer. So in that case, it's an obvious lie. I mean, even Andrea saw it past that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, uh, you know, he claims that he's not interested in the prison. Uh, when, you know, um, Rick hands over that little map with the yeah. little plan, uh, the governor treats it like it's a little drawing that was meant to go on the refrigerator. Very disdainful, the way he just kind of picked it up and sort of threw it about. Um, so I'm wondering, what do you think about that? Is it true? Do we think that the governor really isn't interested in the prison? I think that he's only interested in the prison uh, as something that he doesn't have. I think that he would like Rick and his crowd out of there and for that prison probably just to sit empty while he still maintains his town in case he ever needs it. I think he's just that power. He's Genghis Khan. He just wants everything he can survey he would like to have. Right. I think you're absolutely right. Rick couldn't have it. That's it's something, 
Well, I mean, you look at it and it has, it's a fort essentially. And anyone who's sort of military in terms of their thinking, their mind is not going to give up uh, right. that prison, you know, right away. In fact, he knew about the prison before Rick and them took it over. He just didn't do anything about it because he thought it was a bad situation to go in and clear out that whole prison. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like he was a little too quick to pretend like I'm not interested in that. No, I don't really want the, the prison. I think that that was uh, sort of a half truth. Yes, he's not interested in right now, but I don't think he'd be very happy having someone, you know, um, take over the prison and, and maintain it either. Oh no, he, he, he would strategically want it. And just being the kind of guy, the megalomaniac that he is, he wants it just cause he wants it. <laughs> Yeah. Whether it's strategic or not, yeah. Uh, so it was a pretty – one of the, the things that I, I'm sure a lot of people are going to hate Andrea about was that whole business about Shane. Uh, man, that was hard to watch. Yeah. Where he was digging away at, at Rick without piece. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like, really, Andrea, how could you, you betray that kind of information? I mean, it, a, a secret's a secret. I don't care how well you think Philip is. You, you don't give up that kind of info. But yeah, it, no, I, I – uh, I mean, just one more reason not to like the character. No, but I mean, one of the things that the, the governor did was um, he gave up that piece of information, not only just to kind of twist the knife at, at Rick, but also it gave him uh, a chance to get Rick thinking while he supposedly gave up information about his own personal life. Uh, we started to get stories. And so I'm, I'm curious as to whether you think the, the story he talks about how before the zombie apocalypse happened, he uh, worked at some place where he had to work for a man who was half his age. Yeah, younger and, you know, being told what to do by somebody half my age. That felt authentic to me. That felt like the kind of thing that would push this guy on into a, like in the new world order to be the king because he's tired of being pushed around by people half his age or not as smart as he is or whatever it is that he thinks because he's a megalomaniac in the old world in the old world pre-zombie world order uh he was not that guy now he's got a chance to be that guy he's not going to let it go easily no i get the feeling i mean uh there's been this theme amongst the series as well as the discussions amongst fans that some of the characters that you have like Rick, who were decent guys before the whole zombie apocalypse happened, because of the, the situation that they faced with survival and the horrors, they end up doing dark things. It's not that they're bad people, but they end up being forced to do bad things. And there's been a lot of talk about how the governor may be that kind of a person, that what we're seeing here is someone who is the result of what he's gone through because of the zombie apocalypse. But I feel that that story does ring true. My feeling is, no, it's the opposite for him. He was this disturbed and sick even when society was, was normal. And in fact, he, he, he had no outlet for it. Right. He's one of the more intelligent criminals in that, you know, society's rules were effective enough to kind of feel like he was chained up and, you know, always sort of biting the grip. The moment that everything fell apart, I got a feeling that for him it was a big coming out party in terms of, you know, this is my chance to finally do things my way and, and sort of go after people. So that did feel true. But the story that he tells about how his wife died. Right. I doubt <laughs> that that's true. <laughs> I mean, you know, who really knows? Maybe we'll find out more. But that to me just seemed like um, him talking to Rick and trying to, to find uh, find common ground, find find a way for Rick to feel like he was um, uh, being put on the same level as the governor. Like the, the governor saying, "Here, I will I will bear my soul to you," but I, I but I do think it was not true. I think that part was not true. No, I got I, my take on it is that the whole thing is just contrived as a way to try to get into Rick's head. Uh, and again, Carol made that comment about you know, how this is what men of abuse do. Right. And here you have the governor who has access to information he really shouldn't have. He knows all about Shane. He yeah. knows the fact that, that Judith may not be Rick's uh, um, baby. Yeah. And I, I suspect that through Tyrese and the other crowd that he is fully aware that Rick has had problems with his dead wife. May have even heard about the phone calls because everybody would talk about a phone ringing at this kind of a, a stage. And so that whole story that he tells about number one, losing his wife, uh, it being an accident, him feeling guilty about it. And my favorite line is how he suddenly got a voicemail and uh, you know, he could hear his wife essentially calling him after the fact. And the way he kept repeating that last line, 
what did she want, Rick? What did she want, Rick? Uh, yeah, I mean, there were a few moments in that whole dialogue where David Morrissey plays it perfectly. I mean, you know, there, there's a moment where he sets the, the alcohol out, and when Rick finally gives in and starts to take a, a sip, you get this moment flashed to camera where it's like he's telling the sad story and kind of looks up to see if, you know, if it's being bought. Yeah, I kind of got that feeling that that's what that was. He was telling a story. It's fictitious completely just to try to get inside Rick's head. Yeah, yeah. well, that's, that's what he does, right? That's his, that's his, uh, that, that's the way he operates. And I think, you know, that, that was, was interesting enough, but then just talk and he talk, talk, talk for the rest of that show between the two of them. Yeah, it, it became too one-sided. I wanted Rick to kind of do something that showed that uh, he was a man who at least could navigate these kinds of situations. It doesn't bode well for everybody if he can't get past this, because of course there's darker and bigger things lying ahead. And I sort of felt that was a bit of a failure of the show. you got to have heroes who can at least stand up. Uh, you can't make them, you know, shining, wonderful. They have to have faults, but at the same time, you just can't turn them into punching bags and just sit there and go, okay, you know, we'll walk away and think about whether we hand Michonne over to you or not. Uh, that was just crazy. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, what else, uh, what other questions do we have? Uh, I think that's all the, the major points. I don't think that the governor said anything. Let's see if this guy is going to wake up. He does do something. <laughs> He's been in my possession for a very long time, and part of it is I made. Yes. Does that is that lying or, or telling the truth? I don't know. I can't tell. That's just going through the process, the methodology of, of determining a better right. turn than Doing it over and over again if I'm not careful. But yeah, so I mean, that, uh, there you go. I felt that the majority of what we heard from the, the governor was, was actual, just, just lies, just the usual right. lies. But I am surprised, really surprised, all the articles that I've read, people on Twitter, uh, the number of people who have taken that story at face value, who feel that, yes, the governor lost his wife uh, in a car crash, and that this is probably what helped contribute towards turning him into a bad person. I think no, he was a bad person. No, he was uh, a bad guy to begin with. Who was who was was kept down, and then he was he's an opportunistic bad guy. I think. Yeah, I get a feeling that his wife probably did die, but maybe not because of the zombie apocalypse. Yeah. Um, and I also kind of feel that maybe Penny wasn't living with him at the time. <laughs> I get the feeling that, you know, maybe, you know, his wife may have been um, estranged, may have taken the girl away, and that, you know, what he saw with the zombie apocalypse was a way to get his daughter back. Right, right. There's a lot more going One of the most disturbing things he has said in this series um, is when they're trying to recruit citizens of Woodbury, and he wants one of the young boys. Right. And he explains to Milton, uh, you know, because they say, well, the, the kid, I can't remember how old he is, but he's... he's uh, just like pre-tween, he's, he's not even, you know, like 12 or 13, I can't remember what the age, but very, very young. And he says, adolescence is an invention of the 20th century. Right, right. Which is very, very chilling, meaning that he subscribes to the view that uh, when uh, a child reaches the point of puberty, they're now considered an adult. Yeah, they're now a man, and, and time to put away childish things. Yeah. Well, and that, that applies, I mean, that's going right back to about the 1700s, and it's not just about putting young boys in the service where they can become soldiers, but also getting young girls to become brides very early on. Uh, and so I get a feeling that if the governor were allowed to continue his rule, as it were, it would become even more of a disturbing place to be. Mm. Well, we're going to find out. Only three episodes left, and I, one way or the other, I feel like the governor's uh, storyline is going to end. I think you think it's it's uh, Andrea. I have a feeling it's going to be the governor. Maybe both. Maybe they'll run off together. Well, who? <laughs> no, I think that um, uh, the governor is going to be uh, an opportunity for Andrea to rise up and become the, the kind of person that she should be, that, that people would cheer on, is my feeling. This is about her finally dealing with all of her issues, and uh, the governor represents those issues. 
Um, but yeah, I would I would definitely watch that um, that sniper rifle that Rick has in his hands. I got a feeling that's going to play a very significant role. I'm not saying that because there's anything in the comic books that would say so. Right. Uh, again, the comic books uh, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, you know, um, people get the revenge on the governor and they move on and they go to a, a suburban town where we have a second villain. This one is the combination of two villains. It's the governor and and another villain. So it's almost like they're taking the first two and putting them together. But uh, that's something I would definitely look forward to. Hmm. Did you see the, um, the the sneak peek for next episode? No. No. Okay. No, I didn't. What happens? Uh, well, they're they sh- table again, are they? <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, what happens? The the clip that we see is Andrea and Milton right. seem to have teamed up, and they're late at night, and they're spying on the governor, who is in a room prepping with a dentist chair and a table full of uh, torture implements. Oh. And I think the implication being that he's about to take possession of Michonne and, and have his wave with her. That's uh, terrifying, but for the show, pretty great, although it's not going to happen. No, well, yeah. Uh, they, they were talking to the actress who plays Maggie in the show, and uh, when she saw the clip, she said she had to confess that it wasn't in her copy of the script. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. That's... He was like, oh, dentist chair? I, I, she says, all I can tell you is it wasn't in my script. I don't know what that's about. Well, you want to keep them, you know, you want to keep them as, as uh, in the dark as possible. I mean, Woody Allen only gives the pages of the script that you're on to you when you do one of his movies because he just wants you to concentrate on that character. And you, like real life, you know, I don't know what's going on next door. I don't know what, you know, my friends are doing right now. So that's kind of the way he likes to approach this. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, what they were saying in this series is they do get complete copies of the script. But depending upon who's brought in to produce and direct that particular episode, they do do a lot of last-minute changes that are more atmospheric or, you know, in terms of production design. So who knows? Uh, it, that kind of indicates that in terms of the, the series, there's a, there's a bit of fluidity. Right. That it's not all mapped out in terms of the, the script room early on. Yeah, I wouldn't imagine that it is. I mean, I, I you know, th- this show feels like it's got, uh, like it's taken on a little bit of a life of its own, and certainly different than the comics are. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. Okay, I'm going to push this over here. <laughs> well, oh. uh, today's March 12th, March 12th. and uh, I will just uh, briefly speak of March 12th as the day that the new David Bowie album uh, has been unleashed on the world. And um, it is uh, called The Next Day, it's his first new album in 10 years. Uh, it is, you know, to me, uh, so interesting because not only am I just a giant Bowie geek, uh, but I, uh, beyond that, I love the way that all this has happened. Uh, I love that he has not done interviews. He hasn't done a big confessional interview with Anderson Cooper or Oprah or done any of that sort of thing. Uh, he released a single on his birthday on YouTube, out of nowhere, out of the blue. No one even knew he was recording. Uh, there have been a couple of videos that have dropped. It's amazing, again, that they were able to record an entire album and make videos with no one speaking about it, which I think speaks to the kind of respect that people have for, for him. Uh, and that he has handled this comeback in the way that he has handled his entire career. And The Atlantic has a, has a headline that I think uh, sums up my feelings about this uh, perfectly. And it just, it says, the predictably unpredictable resurrection of David Bowie. Predictably, he has done this in the most unpredictable fashion. You have right now, uh, Justin Timberlake also about to release an album. Justin Timberlake, a superstar. Uh, uh, his, his first record in seven years, six or seven years. And these are two completely different things. Timberlake hosts Saturday Night Live on the weekend. He was on the Grammy Awards. He's, he's popping up uh, all over the place. They're releasing trailers for snippets of the video that will eventually be released. You know, every sort of marketing trick in the world is being uh, uh, given over to this. And it's going to be an enormous hit, probably. David Bowie, on the other hand, isn't going to do interviews. He's not going to tour. He has just said... Here's the music. I'm going to let it speak for itself. And so far it is. It's number one in 21 countries. Uh, it looks like it will be number one in, the, in Britain uh, by the end of today, uh, by the end of March 12th. And it will also be his first number one record in, uh, since 2003. 
And uh, I am uh, thrilled to see it. And I, I must tell you, I have listened to this record over and over and over again, as often as iTunes live streaming would allow me to. Uh, and because I, I now have it, it's now been downloaded from iTunes, but in the, for the last week or so, they will let you uh, live stream it. And it is a fantastic record that takes all that came before, distills it down into something that sounds very modern, but is still unmistakably David Bowie. And it is a, a spectacularly good record from someone who honestly, you know, uh, four months ago, I would have said, oh, no, there won't be any new Bowie music until he dies. And then maybe they'll find, you know, a few things in the vault still, like Jimi Hendrix. They're still releasing Jimi Hendrix records. Uh, but uh, he uh, proved me wrong, uh, happily proved me wrong. And uh, he is predictably unpredictable. And I love it. That's about all I really have to say about this album. But March 12th is a very big day around here for the new David Bowie album. Yeah, I love the video for The Stars Come Out at Night. Um, I think that I here's the thing I would go and see Tilda Swinton in concert lip syncing David Bowie. I know. Well, people have often, I mean, you know, if she was such an inspired choice for that, if a video directed by Floria uh, Sigis Monday, who's from Toronto, by the way. Uh, and uh, but Tilda Swinton was such an inspired choice for that because everybody talks about how much she looks like David Bowie, so it was kind of uh, it was amazing to see the two of them together. Well, and she she pulled it off like incredibly, uh, which is what you want. You don't just want somebody who looks like David Bowie, but who can stand up and be the animal that is David Bowie, which is what she did quite remarkably. And then <laughs> to see the two of them as a couple on the couch and they're they're, they're playing different characters, uh, I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, no, it's 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 uh, the, the videos are are really entertaining, uh, and the record really truly is great. Uh, you know, there, there was a, a, a time, as big a Bowie fan as I am, I'd never play uh, uh, White Noise, White Noise isn't even called, the last big David, the last number one David Bowie album uh, from uh, 2003. I'm just trying to find the title here. And I'll tell you, I, uh, it's not right here. Um, I, you know, that tells you how often I play it. Never. I, you know, because it's just, it, it didn't really resonate with me. This one will become something that I listen to a lot, I think. Oh, wow, that's fantastic. Uh, and I thought it was very interesting that he managed to get it so that iTunes would just stream the entire album. Uh, you know what? So, you know, uh, again, a, you know, 67-year-old man doing something thoroughly modern has always been his, he has always been a step ahead of a curve, and he proved it again this way. Well, one of the, the issues that singers and musicians of his generation have had with iTunes is the way that it divides an album up into single tracks so that people can right. get away with just listening to one. You know, the, the, you get people who just want to listen to the stars come out at night and that's it and then ignore the rest of the album. And that's always perturbed them because I think from his, his generation, his background, when they make an album, they make it so it's designed to be listened to. To from the beginning straight to the end, right? Oh, absolutely. And and you know there are people. Uh, let me just see here. Black tie, white noise was the album. Gotcha. I don't play that one very often. That's to, uh, you know 1993. Then there was outside Earthling hours, heathen reality. You know, in the next uh, ten years after that, and I, I listen to some of those occasionally. But the next day is a record that will that will certainly uh, be on the playlist for a long time. Um, it used to be years ago that there were people whose job it was was to uh, you know take all the tracks that a musician had recorded and then assemble it uh, into the right order on the album. Uh, to make sure that, you know, it's like the pace was okay, that it was compelling, like reading a novel. You know, you always wanted to, you always want to make it so that the person wants to turn the next page. Well, there were people whose job it was, was to figure that out. And by and large, that doesn't happen anymore because, you know, why bother when people are downloading individual songs and that sort of thing? I can tell you that the new Bowie album uh, uh, holds up from start to finish because uh, when you streamed it from, uh, iTunes, you couldn't skip around. You had to listen from start to finish. And I thought that was a, a great idea because you really want to, you know, this is a novel that can be appreciated and listened to from start to finish. And it's not that long. You know, it's not like you got to see, you know, it's not like a, a five hour long uh, investment of your time. You know, it's a little under an hour and you hear amazing stuff. 
Well, I, but it's something, it's been a point of contention with a lot of bands. Uh, you know, sometimes people say, well, it's about money, why a band won't allow their music on iTunes. But often they come back and say, well, no, because people will choose one song and just listen to that song over and over and over again, and nobody actually listens to the entire album. And we painstakingly spend a lot of time crafting these things so that there is a story. It may not be a full-on concept album, but there is a sense of what you're supposed to go through emotionally as you go from one beginning track all the way to the end. And so for iTunes to say, okay, well, we'll put the album up and people can listen to it, but they can't skip to a specific song and just repeat it uh, is very significant, especially because I've read that this has been a really hands-off experience in terms of, of who's handling it. The, stu the, the record labels are not involved. Everything, all the shots are being called by Bowie and his people and his people alone, right? Awesome. I love that. I love that. Well, again, you know, uh, he was, you know, a, a major label uh, artist for his entire career. I mean, you know, 40 years, more than 40 years of, of working for the, the big corporations, uh, you know, and, and now he's doing it his way and it's working. And again, you know, it just shows um, that not only is he a very, you know, obviously, you know, the musicianship on it, you know, is, is, you know, is, is one of my favorite things, but uh, he's also very canny in terms of, uh, reading the zeitgeist of how the world works now and and um, and presenting his art in a way that uh, is uh, the way that he wants it to be seen. And uh, I think it's uh, quite brilliant. I mean, you know, it, it's everywhere today. If you go online, it's yeah. everywhere. Uh, but the interesting thing is, is that it's not, you know, interviews with him and he's not, you know, coming up and, and uh, doing confessional interviews and doing all that kind of stuff. He's just like, here, yep, here it is. And in fact, the BBC... Uh, um, or uh, playing on one of the BBC websites that I found the other day, uh, was just playing old interviews with him. Like the first to sort of, for anything Bowie, right this second, as we sit here right this second, because the record's coming out, the VNA, the Victoria and Albert uh, Museum in London has the, the uh, exhibition that's completely sold out for the next 27 years or something, and it's impossible to get a ticket to. Um, all that, the thirst for stuff about Bowie is so... Uh, intense that they're just rerunning in old interviews. Here's our interview from 1993, you know, and it'd be a half an hour long interview, and people are they're getting huge amounts of hits. People want to hear from this guy one way or the other, whether it's new or old. That's amazing. Okay, cool. And it'll be interesting to see how he, um, he, he, he continues on, how he finds different avenues to kind of interact with the people who are hungry for more information. Yeah, uh, or, or if he does. Yeah, you know, that's the thing. Uh, he apparently, after the heart attacks, or after the heart attack, uh, uh, he spends all his time with his daughter. He has a daughter named Alexandria, and apparently he's like the best babysitter, and he just wants to spend time with his daughter, and that's all he does. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure when he's not painting or, you know, writing music or something, I'm sure he does other things. But, but by and large, the whole... All, all the stuff that people find unpleasant, the promotion, the touring, all that stuff, he's always said that uh, he, he never felt uh, like a natural, or what's the quote? He never really enjoyed performing. He goes, unfortunately, I'm good at it. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, I'm good at it. But it wasn't something that he really loved. It wasn't something that, that you know, he's itching to do again, get out there and, you know, uh, do a, a, a cross-continent tour, which would sell out in four seconds. Uh, he doesn't want to do that, you know? I mean, he, he, you know, clearly, you know, I mean, it helps to not need the money and all that sort of thing. But, you know, he's at a good place, I think, where he can call the shots, spend time with his daughter, live in his cool house in New York, and, and just, you know, live life the way he wants to. And I guess that's, you know, what you work 40 years towards. You know, you want to be seen as, uh, um, uh, you know, as someone who is moving forward still, even though he's nearing 70 years old now, he's still producing art that hands that, that stands up with stuff that he did 40 years ago, so he's not an oldies act. This isn't uh, a comeback. This is just the, this is just another David Bowie album that happens to be really, really great that he is, uh, that, that, that he is uh, presenting in his own inimitable style. Right. He's, he's not trying to dial into the latest trends or what other the young kids are doing, but he's following his curiosity as yeah. to what new opportunities the, the world is offering today. Yeah, and I think that's what I've always loved about him is that, 
you know, he was always uh, like a step ahead of the trains, you know, and and uh, and it's just, you know, I think the result of someone who uh, has an insatiable kind of curiosity just about stuff, about things, you know, and, and wants to see what's out there in the world. And, you know, more often than not, he's just been a, just a little bit ahead of a curve. Cool. Uh, well, I want to also talk about something that was significant this week. I'm going to pull up here. This was the, um, the Doodle uh, that Google offered at uh, Google Search yesterday. Um, it was May. Uh, yesterday was the birthday. The, it would have been the 61st birthday of Douglas Adams. Oh, wow. 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 So if you typed in Google uh, yesterday, this was the, their doodle that they had in honor of him. Obviously, Douglas Adams has become a very important uh, writer towards modern technology because much like Jules Verne predicted what was going to happen with submarines and a lot of other technologies, Douglas Adams predicted mobile technology, the idea of having a device that you could just type in a search and query the world's knowledge. All those things were, were sort of first vision, realized within fiction by, by Douglas Adams in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Now, it, it saddens me because he passed away. He was 49 years old. Um, he died on May 11th, 2001. I had, a me I had an appointment to meet him May 16th, 2001. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, so that was, it was, and, and he was somebody who was very important to me. Uh, a lot of the things that he wrote, I was really looking forward to finally getting a chance to meet with him. And why that you, really hurt. Why, why were you meeting with him? I, it was for a video game that was being designed of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, wow. A three-dimensional third-person game for the PlayStation 2, really? uh, in which you played Arthur Dent walking around your bathrobe and towel. Uh, and when I got there, I just, I, most of the journalists, I think, just canceled the opportunity to go and check out the game because Douglas wasn't going to be there, obviously. Everybody was quite sad. I decided to go and check out the game anyways because I figured, you know, if it's going to come out, I still want to write about it. And uh, I met the guys who were working on it. And to be honest, we spent the whole half hour just basically crying. Right. Uh, they were broken up. I was broken up. The game never came to market. Um, that kind of killed it for whatever was going to happen with it. It was very sad. Uh, but I wanted to, to, instead of getting into The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, oh, the other cool thing that happened that Google did was that at the South by Southwest Festival in Austin, Texas this week, they unveiled this device, which is a talking shoe. So it's a, it's a pair of running shoes by Adidas that have a built-in set of speakers Right. computer chips, GPS, accelerometer, and um, the idea is that not only does the, the shoe talk, and it does talk with a British accent, but it will tweet and collect information about you and share that online. Uh, and the whole point of it is it's not a product they're going to release, but the idea was to demonstrate technology that has a personality to it. Because right, right. uh, the shoes do make commentary about you while you're, you're, you're running. There's a video that they have online of a boy wearing them, and the shoes say, I'm bored. And so he gets up and plays basketball, and the shoes are, are, are you know, um, trash-talking the other players. They're posting tweets about how well this guy is playing. He's on fire, all that kind of stuff. And although they didn't come out and say it, that to me was a nod to Douglas Adams because within the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, he does explore the idea that technology, of course, to serve us, will one day have to have a, a personality, whether it reflects our own or has a complementary one that it would have to. And he has this whole sequence involving elevators that you have to cheer up to get to work to go to the floor that you want to go to because they're having a bad day. And so it felt to me that that's what they were kind of nodding to by coming out with shoes that have a personality this week of all weeks to do so. But what I wanted to touch upon, uh, because everybody's talked about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or Dirk Gently, is that uh, the one thing that most fans have not really embraced, and he was kind of saddened about it, is this book here, which is one of my favorite books, which is right. um, Douglas Adams' Last Chance to See. And uh, he, is, he has said uh, in interviews that of his personal, all the things that he's done in his life, that's his most favorite. It's the one that he felt was actually the most important that he left behind. And it's the one that's probably the least bought and the least read, which is kind of sad. But it was very important for me. This, uh, there was a point in high school where I had a tendency to skip classes, right. where other people went to go and play in the arcade or go get high behind a portable or go off and, and meet somebody. I went to the library and I read books on science 
and math and things of that nature. This was one of the books that uh, I would sit there and just hold and read over and over and over again. Uh, what it's about is that he teams up with a zoologist named Mark Cowardine. And uh, this is back in 1985, and the World Wildlife Fund and the Observer newspaper that Douglas wrote for. Few people realize or know this, but Douglas Adams, um, during the, the early 1980s, wrote for several newspapers in England as a tech journalist and wrote some of the most insightful articles about the first uh, about the potential of computers. If you ever get a chance to read them and find them online, read them. If you're a tech fan, because they would just blow your mind away. Their concept was, they said, you know, we want to encourage, uh, get the message out there for wildlife conservation and what's happening with the environment. So they tapped a number of writers who had nothing to do with it and invited them to go on little wildlife expeditions. And I don't know what happened to the other writers. Either they turned it down or didn't go. But the one guy who said, that sounds interesting, I'll go do that, was Douglas Adams. And he flew initially to Madagascar to check out a small lemur-like creature called the I.I. Uh, which looks like a gremlin with cat ears and has this one long extended middle finger uh, to, to, to take the place of a woodpecker and, and tap through trees and get little grubs. And he was so enchanted with the creature that he ended up setting up an entire uh, sequence of expeditions and he traveled around the world and the concept was to visit animals that were on the brink of extinction. The book is fantastic to read because it's him applying all the things that are fascinating and cool and interesting about technology and, and, and showing how that's also true of, of the world of, of sort of zoology and um, wildlife conservation. So if you, you know, just for him, he realized that just as fascinating as a complex computer network is, just as intriguing as the, the problem solving that happens when you're trying to design or create something in technology and just as revealing of how absurd we as human beings are. It's also true when you're studying, you know, what's happening in the wild with all these little creatures and, and the complex ecosystems that they have. Uh, and that's, for me, it was very refreshing because often the message that comes out of people who talk about wildlife conservation is always like, oh, well, somebody please do something about the animals. You know, it's always this sort of this heartfelt sense of an urgency and it loses its urgency when that keeps repeating year after year after year, right? Crying wolf almost, yeah. Yeah, and I thought his approach to it was much smarter, which was to say that, no, you know, I'm not here to, to preach to you. I'm not here to turn this into kind of a cause. This is fascinating. It's interesting. It's just as captivating uh, in terms of trying to solve the problems of what's happening in the wild as it is trying to realize the potential of what's happening with the Internet and technology. The difference is we pour a lot of resources in terms of trying to untap tap what's happening with technology, and we're not doing that with what's happening out in the wild. It's a very amusing book. He, he, he made famous a number of, of small, unheard of animals that nobody had heard of before, uh, the I.I. being one of them, this odd little gremlin creature that sits in the middle of the night, uh, but also the Kakapo, which is a, the world's fattest and least able to fly New Zealand parrot. Really? I to pick it. What's it called? It's called a Kakapo, K-A-K-A-P-O. <coughs> oh, here we are, yeah. Oh, look at the cockapo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if this will turn out well here or not. Uh... I would say the cockapo was the grumpy cat of the 1980s. Yeah, yeah, the grumpy cat, man. I'll tell you, that that should have played itself. That's a cockapo right there. Could <laughs> give you some idea of its, of its scale uh, to a human being. That's a big bird. Um, the grumpy cat is something that should have played itself out by now, but yet hasn't. Anyway, he's and he's making an appearance at South by Southwest uh, right now, taking pictures of celebrities. So maybe he's jumping the shark. I don't know, but it still amuses me. I know it's it's just fascinating and just incredible. But yes, uh, Douglas Adams, uh, last chance to see if you ever get a chance to read it. I highly recommend it. Uh, it's an interesting story in that he's talking about species that are on the edge of um, of extinction. And unlike other stories where you're constantly, I mean, for a while, I remember in the, the late, the early 1990s, they kept saying that every six seconds, three species would disappear or something like that. And you think, well, mathematically, that doesn't work out. In his book, yes, there are species that he meets that no longer exist. Wow. wow. Um, quite, a, quite a chilling thing. And full of his 
beautiful humorous stories. There's a, a whole sequence in China uh, when he arrives with a BBC sound engineer and he explains that he they want to sort of share with the people at home the amount of noise that's in the Yangtze River. These right. poor dolphins have to live in this river, but because of all the motorboats that's in there, there's a question of whether they can hear anything at all. And uh, the BBC sound engineer says, well, my microphone is not waterproof. I didn't, you know, had you told me we were going to be recording underwater, I would have brought one of those. And the quick fix is, he said, you can just take a condom and put it over top of the microphone. And so then becomes this trip of how three men who don't really speak the language have to go through downtown China and explain to merchants that... <laughs> They need a pack of condoms. Like a fairly large one, I would imagine. Oh, yeah, like the biggest that you have in stock. Yeah. And, and you know, um, trying to work out all the various strategies. And, again, as Douglas Adams is so uh, apt at, at being able to describe, it's just how systems fall apart by the very nature, uh, their own nature as well as our own human beingness. Uh, the problem that they immediately had is that they could successfully get across to people that they were looking to get a condom. Right. Didn't get into why, yeah. <laughs> but the problem was that all the merchants were uh, objected to the idea of having somebody ask for something that was Western, and so they wanted to push Chinese medicine on them and said, right. no, 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 condom's no good. You want these. And they're having to explain that, no, the, the, the pills that you're offering me is not what we're looking for. We actually do need, you know, yeah. And it's just fantastic as he describes those sequences uh, within the book and how he captures the absurdity of a lot of these animals in terms of their, their efforts to try to survive. The Kakapo parrot, uh, who he says has a mating call similar to the opening bars of uh, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. You know, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. And it was just fascinating. But in, for me, what was significant about that book, not just that it was enjoyable, but also that um, for the first time, somebody showed that it was acceptable to, ma to marry the topics of, of nature with right. technology. That that rarely happens, that most people tend to go off into their different corners and they're, they're, they're isolated and different. And he brought it together and said, no, actually they share many commonalities and one is just as fascinating as the other to explore and try to resolve. Right, right. Well, um, and he died so young. And now, is it true that there are still Douglas Adams books coming out? No. That were not written by him? Because I've heard this. Yes. There is a, a book that um, uh, someone has written uh, to sort of capture his voice and continue on. And I, I don't know the real circumstances. Uh, I was told at one point I read that it was, a, it was an approved uh, Douglas Adams book, whether it's approved by his wife or whether it was approved by the publisher who just wants more money, I don't really know the difference. Uh, to me, there's no such thing. You, you really can't capture his unique perspective. I mean, he was someone who combined uh, a bit of the humor of the Monty Pythons. He was a part of that troop for, for briefly on the peripheral, but also the insightfulness that he had in terms of understanding complex systems like technology and being able to predict what was going to happen to them. I don't see how anybody can sort of slide themselves into those shoes and try to, to continue his stories. Well, it's like the the V. H. Andrews. I mean, I, I'm not sure when V. H. Andrews uh, passed away, but there are dozens of well, maybe not dozens, a number of books that have come out since then because there's kind of apparently, from what I understand, a kind of V. H. Andrews plot generator somewhere, a giant, I imagine, a giant IBM computer with big reels on it that spits out ideas and people write in the style of V. H. Andrews, and their the, the books uh, um, come out and, and continue to sell. Apparently. Well, there have been a lot of books and a lot of humorists that have tried to um, sort of almost create a genre out of that kind of comedy and science fiction. And often they fail or they, they, they sort of become their own voices. What has happened to kind of extend his legacy is that every year on this day uh, in England, there's a group of, of his colleagues and friends that get together and they hold the Douglas Adams Lectures. Right. And this encourages people to stand up and have discussions and talk about uh, ta technology, wildlife conservation, uh, and share humorous stories that are kind of in his vein as a way to remember uh, who he was and the kind of things that he stood for. Right, right. I'm just saying it, it's V.C. Uh, Andrews, not V.A. V.C. Andrews, right. And, um, it looks like she died in 1986 <laughs> at the age of 63. And uh, there are books and books and books. I mean, there's, there's dozens of books that have been released since then. No, and there was, um, I mean, it's, it's like when they write a sequel to Gone with the Wind or The Wizard of Oz 
there was a sequel. There was a sequel written to Blade Runner, and uh, you know, I, <laughs> I just sort of feel you can't do that. It's it's sort of it becomes fan fiction to me at that point. Absolutely, there's something that doesn't seem quite right about it. No, no, uh, he is a um, one of the things that uh, is fantastic about all of his books. If you do buy something that says Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or is an official sequel approved by the publisher is that a lot of the money that he earned in his lifetime uh, allowed him to become a patron of the Diane Fossey Foundation as well as Save the Rhinos. Uh, he was a huge fan of the rhinos to the point that he often would get dressed up like as a rhino and tour around uh, <laughs> other countries to try to raise awareness. And he was very intrigued about the problems that they have in trying to deal with rhinoceroses. Uh, one of the issues was with poachers. It, it's, it's just, it's so inept sometimes in trying to deal with the situation. You've got rhino horns that uh, if poachers go from Sudan to uh, Belize, Belize, I think it is, they kill a rhinoceros, they grab the horn, they sell it for about $6. After a while, the horn gets passed along and eventually ends up in some Malaysian prince that buys it for a handle, for a ritual, and they end up paying $50,000. It's just crazy. So years ago, they thought, hey, we've got it all figured out. We'll just go find the poachers and say, whatever those guys are paying you for those horns, we'll right. double it. Right. And what ended up happening? The poachers took the money still grabbed the horn, killed the rhino, and sold the horn because they wanted as much money as they could get. Yeah. So the next solution was to just go into the wild, find rhinos, uh, tra tranquilize them, and then cut off their horns because that doesn't hurt the rhinos. Right. Right. What ended up happening? The, the poachers still found the rhinos. When they realized there wasn't a horn on them, they killed them anyway. The reason being because they didn't want to spend all the time and energy hunting down these rhinos only to have to do it again. So they thought, well, let's kill it so we don't find this rhino again. And unfortunately, the northern white rhinos, rhino, which was one of his favorites, is now extinct. And there's only, I think, three or four species of rhinos left. Anyways, it's crazy. But I, I just, you know, in terms of talking about him on his 61st birthday, what would have been his 61st birthday, that's one of the, the great aspects that people don't really talk about with him. Right. Right. Well, um, I will pull out somewhere in here. I have Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The book's better than the movie. I'll pull it out. I'll pull it out and have a look at it today in tribute. All right. That's much appreciated. <laughs> um, that's That looks to be it. Yeah, that's definitely it for this week. Uh, we thank you all for, for joining us. And, uh, and join us again next time. We will, we will keep you up to date on what is going to be a war on the Talking Dead or the Walking Dead. I tell you, it's going to be a war. So we'll, uh, we'll discuss uh, further next week. Yeah, if you've got any predictions, by all means, you can share them with us at HeyAllYouZombies.com. We're available through YouTube as right. well as iTunes and Mix Radio. We thank you very much if you've been subscribing and liking and doing all that kind of wonderful supportive stuff. See you soon.